AD, has been this recurring and refreshing reminder to us at the church here in Lake Worth in 2018. It's been a reminder to us that churches aren't country clubs for saints, but they're hospitals. They're hospitals for sinners. And as such then, in the church, like in a hospital, we should expect to find difficulty. We should expect to find disease and disorder and and messiness and complexities. In other words, just like if we were to go into a hospital, we should expect to find people struggling, so too is the church of God. We should find people who are struggling. Because if we're honest, like we talk about in our confession every week, we're all struggling. We're all struggling with sin, that sinful nature that still plagues us and makes our lives messy at times and makes our churches messy as well. Yet unlike in hospitals where the cure for an illness is sometimes unknown or sometimes unavailable, in the church we know the cure for our condition. The cure for our condition is nothing less than the gospel of Christ Jesus. His perfection for our imperfection. His faithfulness for our faithlessness. And so we've been called as his people. We've been called as Christians, which we again profess each and every week in that profession of faith. But we recognize we're not all the way there yet. We're not perfected yet. We've been called, we've been justified, but we're now on this road of sanctification. And we still live life here fighting between two natures. The old nature of the flesh, the new nature of the spirit. And so until we get to that final glory, until we get to that perfected state in heaven before Christ Jesus face to face, we're still going to struggle with sin. We're still going to be messy people. And again, we see that in the church as we're all on this journey of faith, this journey of sanctification. And so one of the specific struggles that we've seen the church in Corinth deal with, but it's a struggle that we too can be plagued by, is the struggle of division. Division. We saw here in the earlier chapters of the Corinthian letter that this specific church was divided by preference over which pastor they liked better, They were divided over racial lines, demographics. They were divided by legal disputes. That was a chapter that we actually didn't get to. We kind of glossed over it, but they were suing each other. (laughs) They were disputing over legal matters, and instead of recognizing that they were one family, brothers and sisters in Christ, they were actually suing each other, all right? So they're divided over pastoral preference, racial lines, legal disputes. They were even divided over dietary matters. As a new Christian, can you eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Do you have to forego it? Again, not really a, you know, an example we deal with here when you go to Whole Foods, Market, Publix, Winn-Dixie, right? They don't have like the idol section, you know, where this was grass-fed but also sacrificed to Aphrodite, right? That section's missing. But it was a real concern back then. And again, there was division over, as a Christian, what should life look like? What's your responsibility? So then it's no surprise that last week in chapter 11, 
And this week, in chapter 12, Paul has been emphasizing this idea of unity. Unity in the body of Christ. And in chapter 11, last week, he emphasized how we are unified around the Lord's table, around the Lord's supper. That again, we have that one common disease of sin, but we have the one common cure, which is the atoning work of Christ Jesus, his body, his blood, and we share in that. And so if we share the same disease, but we share the same cure, then that should unify us. That should unify us. Well, here in chapter 12, he now emphasizes how we are unified as members of one society. We're members of one society, but far from it being just another, you know, club or an association like your, your civic association or whatever political party you're affiliated with or, you know, your alma mater, your school. It's beyond that. We're members of one society called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And just as Jesus left for his people a physical reminder, a sacramental reminder of his presence among us, he has also left for the world a reminder of his presence. And that reminder or that physical witness to the world of God's presence is the church. It is the body of Christ. It is you and me. And so again, just like the literal body of Christ, you know, of Jesus himself is unified, the Godhead, though it is distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit is unified, we too then, as the body of Christ, are called to be unified. We're distinct, we're different, but we should be unified. And so in this section, and in, in chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, Paul wants to drive home again this point of unity. And he does it in three ways, all right? He does it in three ways. And the first is this. He tells us in verses 12 through 13 that we are unified in what we left behind. We're unified in what we left behind. And you can really see that when he talks about baptism. Look at verse 13. He says, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. Again, you have to remind yourself that those are kind of the, you know, the, the four massive categories that dominated the New Testament church. But it could be anything. You've been baptized into one body, whether black or white, whether rich or poor, whether Republican or Democrat, whether you, know, you wear a suit and tie or you wear jeans. Whatever it is, all right, we've been baptized into one body, all right, one spirit. And so again, think about that in your own life. Whether you were baptized as an infant because your parents were believers and they were claiming those covenant promises to you, or whether you were baptized as an adult because you came to faith later, your baptism, your baptism marks you out from the world. Your baptism indicates that you, have been, you are leaving behind an earthly identity marker and instead taking up a heavenly one. So again, think of that example. If an infant is baptized, it signifies that even more than that child is a masterson 
or a Menendez, or a Lee, or a Wade. More so than those identity markers, this child is Christ's. This child has had promises made to he or she before the foundation of the world, before the ink was dry on that birth certificate. That child belongs to Christ. And so that's being signified in the baptism. They're leaving behind, even at an early age, how the world has marked them, and instead taking up the mantle of how God has marked them. He is, or she is, a child of Christ's. But for the adult convert who's baptized, it's similar. The person who comes to faith later and is baptized as an adult is signifying to the world that they are identifying with Christ above and beyond anything else that marks them. Again, they might have been a Jew or a Greek or slave or free or black or white or male or female, but more fundamentally, more importantly, they are saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ who has bought me. And this is actually exactly why, this is a little bit of, a, of, a, of an aside, if you are saved as an adult and baptized, you know, the mode is up for debate that divides some of us Christians. But I personally, even as a Presbyterian minister, I prefer immersion for adults. I prefer an adult to be immersed if possible. Why? Because Paul says baptism itself signifies something. It signifies the death, burial, and resurrection of not only Christ Jesus, but also you. You. You have been buried with Christ in baptism, and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. And you see that picture, especially in immersion of an adult, where they are literally dying to their old self. They're dying to their old identity and being raised as a new man or a new woman. They're being raised with an identity marker as a Christian. And so that's, this is Paul's point here in these early verses. We are unified, all of us this morning, we are unified in the fact that we are fleeing or we are leaving behind an old nature. And we are now clinging to a new nature. We are clinging to lives that have been directed toward Christ. And so if we have a common you know, uh, perspective we're fleeing and a common goal we're pressing towards, then we should be together in this. We should be unified as one people. Here's an example. All of us here understand hurricane season, right? <laughs> we all live in South Florida. All right, hurricane season. Hurricane season is stressful. It's anxious. It's worrying. Especially if a hurricane comes that causes you to evacuate. Last year, uh, we had to evacuate. We were too far east in Broward County, and we had to evacuate. I can't recall which storm it was. I always forget the names. But we had to evacuate. And so we ended up going up to Atlanta to, to see some family, kind of using that as an excuse to, to see some family. But as you know, when you evacuate, especially during hurricane season, it's like survival of the fittest. It's every man, woman, child for himself. No holds barred. It's like this primal attitude overcomes everybody. You know, the gas stations are just packed and it's cutthroat and it's just, you know, survive. Do what you can. The heck with your neighbor, all right? Just survive. But again, you think that shouldn't be the case, right? You're all fleeing the same disaster. 
You're all fleeing the same common fear, and you're pressing towards something together. You'd think it would actually, you know, make us nicer to each other, more congenial, but it does the opposite. But Paul's point is that that shouldn't be. Again, in our spiritual lives, we're all fleeing the same thing. We've all left behind the same thing, which is a sinful nature, how the world has marked us. And we're all pressing towards the same goal, which is Christ Jesus. So let's do it together. Let's do it together. Let's encourage each other. Let's not nitpick each other. Let's not act like we're on different teams. Let's do it together. That's Paul's point. We're unified in that identity, in what we left behind. But then secondly, we're unified in our diverse gifting. This is like in verses 14 through 20. We're unified in our diverse gifting, verses 14 through 20. And he talks about, you know, ears and eyes, and, you know, the foot can't say to the hand, the hand can't say to the foot. If you were all ears, how would you smell? If you were all eyes, how would you hear? You know, all these kind of things. And I don't know about you, but when I read that section, I think of Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head, the classic toy, right? Where you can take different parts of the body and put it on that ridiculous looking potato and you can do what you want. If you want to put the ear where the eye goes and the mouth where the nose goes and the shoe where the hairpiece goes, you know, you can do that, right? And it makes this silly looking, crazy looking potato, okay? Well, Paul here basically calls them to apply what they know of their own physical bodies to the spiritual body of Christ, which is the church. Do you want Mr. Potato Head to have all eyes? Eyes for nose, eyes for ears, all ears, all hands, all feet? Would you want your own body to look like that? Then Paul says, well, then why do you want the spiritual body, which is the church, to look like that? How weird would your life be if you had an ear for a nose and a nose for an ear? And you had no eyes, but you had just two ears, and then a third ear, and a fourth and a fifth ear, and a sixth ear. Paul says, if you know that about your physical body, then why not apply that same understanding to your spiritual body. Why do we want the church to look exactly like we do? To value all the same things that we do? To put resources only in the places we want them? Why do we do that? Why? Why, if you're naturally, let's say, here's some examples, right? If you're naturally a music person, you're going to want all the resources and attention to go to church music just natural. If your passion is missions, it's a good passion, but you're naturally going to want all the church resources and budget and focus and attention and sermons to go towards missions. It's natural. If you're a person with children, I am, right? Little children still. I'm naturally going to want resources and time and perspective and priorities to go towards children. That's natural. Again, if you're in a mercy ministry or education or whatever it might be, again, you're going to want that to have the monopoly on the church resource. And the reason, of course, is because it's human nature. It's human nature. And everything we do, even church work, is naturally tainted by sin, by selfish desires, by bias, by, by perspective. 
That's, that's normal. But Paul's reminder here is that if you actually got what you wanted every time, and if all the resources always went to that one idea, and all the church always looked exactly one way, it might sound good, but in the end, you'd actually find yourself shortchanged. You'd actually find the body of Christ shortchanged and atrophied and not fully developed, just like your own body. If your whole body was an ear, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> if your whole body was a foot, that wouldn't be good. No, you need every part, every nuance, in order for it to be fully developed. And you see, Paul's point here is that it's precisely the diversity in the body of Christ expressed in the diversity of our members, all our varying gifts, all our varying personalities, all our varying dispositions that actually form the beautiful mosaic, the beautiful mosaic that God is creating in the church, in the body of Christ. And all those things actually work in concert together to do what? To draw us out of ourselves. To draw us out of ourselves. We're always naturally self-focused. But when we're together under one roof, because we have to be, and we all look a little bit different and think a little bit different and value things a little bit different, it's good for us. It's good for us because it pulls us out of ourselves and reminds us that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, which is the body of Christ. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton once said, oh, how much larger your life would be if you were the smaller in it. Isn't that true? Self-focused lives are small lives. They're small lives. We've been swept up into the body of Christ. It's bigger and brighter and better than we could ever imagine and than we could ever be on our own. And so Paul says we're unified in what we left behind. We're unified in our diverse gifting. And then lastly, we're unified in our value to the body of Christ. We're unified in our value to the body of Christ. And this is in verses you know, 21, really to the end. And what does Paul say here? Well, apparently, in the Corinthian church at the time, but again, it's no different today, one of the major sources of their division as it pertained to the gifting in the church was that they had become captivated, they had become captivated by certain gifts. Certain gifts. And so they esteemed people with those gifts more highly. And they put them on a, on a pedestal. Certain gifts were on the pedestal. And again, think of how we do that even in the world. It's not just a church thing. Uh, we do that even in the world. So for instance, you know, as Americans and, you know, Westerners, you know, 21st century people, we value two things above and beyond anything else. If you can make money... And if you can get yourself on camera, it's, what else is there? What else in life is there, right? I mean, those are the two, like, highest values of our society. If you are somebody who can make money, you are important. You are important and, and, and deferred to and respected beyond anybody else. And if you can get yourself on camera, <laughs> it doesn't matter how you do it, how low you had to stoop to do it, what you're doing on the camera, you're just on it. And again, we'll defer to you, and we'll put you on a pedestal, and we'll give you your own show, and well, I guess you already had the show if you're on camera, but you know what I mean. We'll, we'll do whatever, 
get on camera, make money, you're on a pedestal. You're deferred to. You're given respect and power, whether you deserve it or not. But again, the same thing happens in the church. And this was happening in the church of Corinth. It's full of many gifts, but they showed preferential treatment and praised some above others. And the ones they praised more above others were the glamorous gifts. The glamorous gifts. People who could speak in tongues. People who had these miraculous gifts. People who had charisma and eloquence and you know, could stand up front and speak and do those kinds of things. But again, it's not much different today. It's not much different today. But of course, when we elevate certain gifts, like I just mentioned, we will naturally then dismiss or ignore other gifts, gifts that are less glamorous, gifts that are less visible, someone who is a prayer warrior behind the scenes, someone who is patient and discerning, someone who serves without being noticed, someone who is an administrator or, or you know, has those kind of behind-the-scenes giftings, Someone who's a wise counselor or a faithful friend or a helpful organizer. Those are the gifts that get ignored. Those gifts were seen as lowly, non-glamorous, less important. But Paul does two things here in, in closing that corrects that way of thinking. Two things. First, if you noticed, in verses 27 through the end, he gave a list. And we don't have time to unpack the list entirely, and we should only put so much stock in some of the, you know, the hierarchy there, but he does something intentional. If you notice in that list, first, second, third, on and on and on, in verses 27 and following, he puts tongue speaking at the very end. That glamorous gift at the very end. And what precedes it are the more regular, if you will, necessary you know, gifts that simply steward the church, that simply guide the church of God. It's as if Paul is trying to get us to see that God doesn't need the glamorous. doesn't need the glamorous and the glittery to accomplish his will. He just needs his word to go forth. <laughs> Notice all the gifts that he, he lists high are gifts around the word of God. The word of God. It's as if Paul's saying, God doesn't need the glamorous. He just needs his word to go forth. Be faithful to teach and preach his word. That's what the church is about. And then secondly, this is a little, little more complicated to see, Paul makes it clear that not only doesn't God need the glamorous gifts, or those glamorous parts of the body, so to speak, but the less glamorous gifts are actually more vital. They're more vital when it comes to a church flourishing. This is what he means in verses like 22 and 23, where he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. And those parts of the body we think less honorable, we should show the greatest honor. What is he saying there? Think of the body for a minute, the body image he's giving you. He's saying it's like this. We all want, you know, big muscles and flowing locks of hair, okay? The visible gifts that people esteem and value and impress. But Paul says, it's actually, though, the parts of your body you can't see, like your heart, 
and your lungs and your stomach and your vital organs that matter more. You might lose your hair. You might lose your muscles. And I'm not going to point out who's doing that here. Okay, just kidding. You might lose those things, but it's what you can't see that matters. Those gifts, those parts of the body, those are the vital ones. Those are the ones that need the greater honor. And Paul says the same way in the church. Same way in the church. We love the glamorous gifts. You know, I'm somebody who stands up here and speaks. I'm glad to do so. But again, you know, we've seen churches that worship pastors, that turn pastors into idols. We're not going to do that here, <laughs> okay? Uh, the glamorous gifts, all right? But Paul says it's actually the gifts you can't see that, that matter, that actually sustain the church. This is why, and we don't have time to go there, of course, today, which is why in chapter 13, he will launch into what he calls the more excellent way, the more excellent gift, which is what? Love, the gift of love. He says, you could speak in tongues all you want, but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. And so again, he wants us to see here that it's the parts of the body, even the body of Christ, we often overlook, that God says those have a lot of value. Those have a lot of value. And so he wants us to to be unified in our gifting, no matter the gift. Whether we're someone in the church that is good at being up front, whether we're someone in the church that is good at being behind the scenes, Paul says it all matters. It all has value. And it's all necessary for the body of Christ to function as it should. And so as we prepare to once again approach this table in a few minutes, remember this morning that what you left behind and what God has called you to be, and that should unify us. And ask yourself, what gifting, what diverse gift has the Lord given you to serve his church? Because we all have something. How has the Lord gifted you? And then lastly, as you come to the table, be encouraged and take heart. That whatever that gift is, up front, behind the scenes, somewhere in between, it's valued. It's valued and it's necessary and it's welcomed here at Lake Osborne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time we've been able to encounter your word. Thank you for convicting us where that has been required. Thank you for encouraging us where that was necessary. And God, we now pray that as we have a chance to see the word displayed at the table, that you would once again reinforce for us that we are one people, one body, together under one spirit, one Lord, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So bless us, we pray in his name. Amen.